Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So, Anne, I know you know how excited I have been about today's guest, Joe Walsh. I really thought we were getting the singer, but, you know, here we go. I know. Well, Joe has told me he'll sing for us at the very, very end. Awesome. (laughs) So, Joe and I have never met in person, but I originally knew him as this kind of crazy Tea Party guy back when he was in Congress in 2011 and 2012. He was representing the Chicago area. And then after his one term in Congress, I vaguely knew he was a conservative talk show host, but I don't listen to conservative talk radio. So (laughs) it was kind of just this vague thing that I knew. And then he really didn't cross my consciousness again until summer of 2018, when someone I follow on Twitter retweeted Joe saying, it's no longer about what Trump does. It's about what we do. This is the time to speak out. This is the time for choosing. America is in danger. Choose country over party. Choose country over policy. And that just really, really caught my eye. Because, of course, I'm thinking he's this crazy Tea Party guy, right? And (laughs) so I started following him on Twitter. And what I noticed was that he had started really respectfully engaging with people across the political spectrum. And it didn't happen all at once, right? There was definitely this transformation happening. But one of the things I found so interesting and impressive was how public he was about owning his own transformation and calling himself out, but also calling out the ways in which he was changing. And I I just found that so inspiring and kind of remarkable. So his past isn't all about politics, though. In his 20s, and I learned this about you, Joe, when I was reading your Wikipedia page, is that he pursued an acting career and studied in both New York City and L.A., And then between acting and his foray into conservative politics, he was a social worker working with students in low-income areas. So kind of a range of things there, and we'll be really interested to hear how all that fits together. But today, Joe's mission is to listen. And all you need to do is listen to his podcast, White Flag, to know that he really means it. The purpose of the podcast is to find common ground with people who have very different viewpoints than his. And there's a line in the description that strikes me as a really apt description of how Joe is now moving through the world. He surrenders the urge to fight and strives to find a path to unite, not divide. So Joe, we are so excited to have you join us today and welcome to the podcast. Sherry and Ann, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for the invitation. I have a lot of flaws, but I generally am nakedly honest and it's awesome to be with you both. Well, it's so great to have you here. We'd love to start by hearing just a little bit about who you are and what your journey has looked like. Ten years ago, I was a musket-grabbing tea party wild man. I did see that tweet. Yes, (laughs) and that's still my favorite tweet because it's the most (laughs) misunderstood tweet. But ten years later, the same musket-grabbing tea party guy is doing all he can to help get Democrats elected. That's a bizarre, very public path that I don't know anybody else in my position took. It's been difficult. It's been scary. Sherry, as you and I talked about once, I've had no other choice. I did what I had to do. 
Why is that, Joe? What do you mean that you did what you had to do? I couldn't live with myself or sleep or, or, or wake up every morning if I didn't do what I believe was right. I had a choice when Trump came on the scene six, seven, eight years ago. I had the same choice that all of my former Republican colleagues in Congress had and all of everybody else in my world, the right wing media had. Say what you really believe or don't say what you really believe and keep your job in Congress and keep your radio show or show on Fox. Most everybody chose the latter not to say what they believe. And it makes sense because you keep your job, you keep your livelihood, you keep your money and your ratings. But I couldn't live with myself if I had done that. Everybody talks about, oh, Joe, you're so brave for what you did standing <laughs> up against Trump. Fuck all that. Yeah. In many ways, weirdly, it was an easy decision because even though I lost everything and I did, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do that. Yeah. But there was a transition in there somewhere, right? Because you were actually pro-Trump for a while, right? And so what shifted for you? And part of the danger here, guys, is when you're a public person like me, you become a caricature. And part of that's my fault, because Lord knows I said a bunch of things and did a bunch of things these last 10 years to help grabbing that musket, create that caricature. But I was painted as an enthusiastic supporter of Trump's. I supported Trump in 2016. I wasn't enthusiastic. He actually blocked me on Twitter in 2015 because I would criticize him pretty regularly. But I did vote for him. And I voted for him, and because the same people who were attracted to him were attracted to me. I understood what they saw in him. Look, I'm a political disruptor. I think our politics is fucking mess up. I think both parties suck. I think we're going through a real political revolution in this country. So in 2016, when Trump came on the scene, I said publicly, we need disruption. Now, there are good disruptors and bad disruptors. He turned out to be an evil disruptor. But I voted for Trump, not because I loved him or liked him, but I voted for him because I understood why people supported him. And I felt we needed disruption. But look, the part that's been tough is it's been very public. I've been naked for the last seven years. And I fucked up in 2016 because even though I was on 100 talk radio stations around the country and I was on Fox News every fucking day, pardon my language, I didn't pay enough attention to Trump. I really didn't. I didn't take him seriously. I thought he was just a goof who, if he got elected, would play a lot of golf Maybe he'd appoint a couple good people and maybe a couple good things might happen. Okay. I was wrong, mm. very wrong. And so it seems like early on in his presidency, you sort of realized that he was more evil than benign. Is that a fair assessment? That is not only fair, and that is spot on. So, so the moment he got elected, I actually started to pay attention to him. And two things jumped out at me. Every time he opens his mouth, he lies. I mean, every time. Politicians lie, fudge, embellish, all of that. Joe Biden's always had a bit of a problem with the truth, but we've never seen anything like Trump. Every time he opens his mouth, he lies. I can't live with that. The other thing that jumped out at me from the beginning was after Trump got elected, we found out that Russia screwed with our election to help get him elected. And instead of doing the decent thing after he got elected, saying, this is wrong, 
this is an attack on America. I appoint a special prosecutor to look at what Russia did. Like the five-year-old Trump is, he got all defensive, like it might tarnish his victory. And he went after our people instead of going after Russia. So I'm on the radio every day. I'm one of the biggest conservative talk radio hosts. And every day, week, and month I pay attention to him, I really start to go south on him pretty early. And it began to ruin my career. Yeah. You made the comment that people say, oh my gosh, that was so courageous. And you look at it as it really wasn't that courageous. I had to do what I thought was right. And I'm curious, where were those seeds originally planted or sown, whichever is the right word to use, around this very strong moral center, if you will, or this very strong sense of the way you see right and wrong. Where did that come from? And when I say, look, when I say it wasn't courageous, part of that is I was raised in a family where you don't talk about yourself, period. So it's not my job to say, look at me. I did a really brave thing five, six years ago. I think what Liz Cheney did was brave. I can call Liz Cheney brave or my friend Adam Kinzinger. I can call him brave. Other people can call me brave if they want. That's not my job. I lost my job. I lost my livelihood. I get death threats every day. I lost any hope of a political future. I lost all of that doing what I did. If people want to think that's brave, that's fine. Where does it come from, Sherry? I come from a big Irish Catholic family of nine kids. I've never, ever, ever been driven by money. I've always been driven by cause and mission. I almost became a priest. I wanted to be an actor, but I was too damn lazy because I wanted to be in front of people to help inspire people. I was a teacher and a social worker. I've always been driven by mission, never money. So in a way, it wasn't easy decision. My wife bemoans it, but I've never <laughs> been driven by money. To me, it's always been about leaving this earth when I do, having helped make it a better place. And even though politically, the three of us might disagree on a lot of things, even 10 years ago when I'm in Congress and I'm yelling at Obama every other day, generally I was yelling about things I believed in. And it got me in a lot of trouble. And Republicans back then told me to shut up. But I've just always had this thing where I have to be out in front, taking all the slings and the arrows and saying what I believe because I don't think most people do that. Yeah. You know, Joe, though, for a guy that has such a strong belief in that, I mean, what you just said about Trump's first election is you kind of weren't paying attention. And so if you have this big, strong belief in, in how important it is that we have people that are actually doing good for our country, why weren't you paying attention? And it's so funny, and no one's ever asked me that question. So uh, let me add a wrinkle to it, and you can shoot my wrinkle if you'd like. <laughs> I didn't pay attention to him. And by the way, I knew about Donald Trump, what I guess the average person knew about Trump. I never watched The Apprentice. I never really paid attention to Trump. But I purposely didn't pay attention to him. When he ran in 16, I was one of the upcoming conservative, disruptive leaders in the country. I believed in disruption. 
Before Trump said it, Ann, I was saying, heck, I said this when I went to Washington 10 years ago. We need to not burn that place down. We need to shake it up. We need to blow it up. We need change. We need revolution in this country. Both parties suck. So I believed in all of that. And that's what I'd been telling my supporters for six, seven years. And then along comes a candidate who, even though he's an idiot and a bullshitter, He's saying the same things and he's running for president. And everybody who said, Joe, Joe, Joe for six years. Yeah, that's right. Now they were with him. So it's kind of like I believed in what I was saying. And I saw all my voters and supporters finally having a presidential candidate who articulated that. It made sense to me. But I cannot get over the fact, Ann, that I fell down on the job in not paying enough attention to who he was. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. One more thing in fairness, not in defense of me. I was caught up. I have a conservative talk radio show, three hours a day, a couple hundred markets around the country. I'm literally on Fox News every day. It's the culmination of everything I've been saying for six years. I'm caught up in the cause and I ignore the mouthpiece. Right. I mean, I do think that that is so much of what's going on in politics now, right? We have retreated to our respective corners and we turn a bit of a blind eye to what's being said or whoever is being presented to us. And we kind of vote blindly sometimes. I think that's true on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. I guess part of my question is, is so you had this bit of awakening. It sounds like, is it fair to say it was kind of with the Russia thing? Was that sort of what sparked some of the awakening, do you think? There's a private and a public awakening. (laughs) It's a public awakening, but there's a private moment where I turned to my wife early after Trump got elected. I'll never forget this, you two. I came home from doing my radio show a month and a half into his presidency. And I turned to Helene. We sleep with our dogs. I don't know about you guys. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We're in bed with the dogs. It's hell on our sex life. (laughs) That's okay. We're in bed with our dogs and it's been a long day. And I turned to Helene and I said, this is not going to end well for me. I'm going to publicly oppose him one day soon. And it's going to change our lives. That was a month and a half into his presidency. Then fast forward a year and a half. My public final straw with Trump was Helsinki when he stood in front of the world with Putin and said, I stand with Putin and not my own people. That was the summer of 2018. I went on the radio that night and I publicly said, that's fucking it. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure he's not reelected. So in that year and a half, I kept going south on him day by day. Yeah. There's some stuff here to explore about this retreating to corners, but now I'm really interested in your own personal journey here. So you tell your wife, it's not going to end well. You make these public declarations. People start peeling away from you. You lose everything as you say, what's going on for you when this is happening? Like that must've sucked. Oh, and it sucked. (laughs) I can't imagine. At one level, at one stupid level, as I now look back, 
And Rush Limbaugh and I are very different animals because he was just a performer and an entertainer. On the radio, I bled my heart every night. I was primed to be the next Rush Limbaugh. If Donald Trump never happens right now, we'd still be talking to each other. (laughs) Right now, I'd be the biggest thing on conservative talk radio. I knew that's the path I was on. I could go back to Congress in a nanosecond. If Donald Trump never happens, I may well be running for president as a Republican right now. I'd be the at a very late age of 47 or 8 when I first ran for Congress, I finally did what I was meant to do. And I put myself on a path that was limitless. And if Trump doesn't happen, away I go. So knowing in my heart, a month into his presidency, everything I thought about and dreamed about is going to die. It was the most difficult, depressing two years of my life. Without dogs, I'd be dead. I mean that. Right. What's so interesting about what you're saying is that while Trump becoming president in 2016 has altered so much in this country and has had such a profound impact on so many people's lives, for you, it, I don't even want to say it was a 90 degree turn. It was like a 180 degree turn for you on everything you thought about the way your life was going to play out completely changed. And you did that very intentionally. So those two things to me are so interesting, right? Because a lot of times people have situations where it was like, I was clipping along and then X happened and doing nothing of my own accord, my life just dramatically changed. For you, it was this intersection of Trump happening and you choosing completely altered the path of your life. At one level, at the human level, the professional level, the financial level, it ruined my life. The political level, it ruined my life. I was a rising star in the Republican Party, and then boom. It's something you both said, one of you said earlier, that I knew a month or so in to his presidency what was going to happen. I just couldn't publicly acknowledge that until another year. So yeah, Sherry, at one level, this thing happens. I have to choose. I chose and it ruined my life. But then the flip of that I always think about is it gave me an opportunity to grow because I may not be making any money right now, but I'm a better person because the election of Trump forced me to look inside myself and realize what a fucking ass and a divisive figure I had been. Here's the weird thing. So if Trump doesn't happen, I'm Mr. You know, radio star and I'm Republican bigwig. I'm still a dick. Maybe I'm still a a musket grabbing jerk. Isn't that weird? Yeah. So it's an interesting question. Did it really ruin your life? Yes. I was going to make millions, Sherry. How dare you ask me that question? What about the million we're paying you for this podcast? (laughs) No, but that's what's so frustrating. You're right. 
did it really ruin your life, Joe? People ask me. Yes, at one level it did, but thank God it happened. I mean that. You know, that's such an interesting paradox. And then we will move on. But it's such an interesting paradox that both of those things are true. Yeah. Right? It completely blew up the life you were on track for financially, professionally, your circle. I'm sure you lost a shit ton of friends. All of them. And so in that way, yeah, it's hard to say that didn't ruin your life. And I also hear you saying you are a better person because of it. Before Trump, you two did and would have despised the public person I was. Probably. With good good reason. (laughs) Yeah. Trump was that cold slap in my face. Everybody asked me what changed me from the Tea Party jackass to I'm still a Tea Party guy. I'm a nice guy now, though. What changed me? Trump changed me because I looked at him. Once I started paying attention to him and I thought to myself, my God, did I sound like that? Do I sound like a tenth of that? Have I attacked my political opponents like this dickhead does? Trump really woke me up, honestly. Yeah. The gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) In in good ways and not so good ways, right? So you're... Life, and I'm going to call it your life on the surface, was was mm-hmm. ruined. Mm-hmm. And yet, what I'm sensing is a bit of a rebirth in a lot of ways, like a bringing in of, in a lot of ways, who you were meant to be and who you always were. I mean, I'm thinking about the guy that was the social worker and the teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And he's not going to stand for some of this bullshit that, that Trump is, is spewing. So two years of devastating loss. You sort of made the joke about dogs, but I am curious, what helped you during that time to sort of stay sane and keep your head above water? I've been trying to think of that lately because I lost all of my followers. I lost all of my supporters, all of them. I lost pretty much all of my friends. Stunning to say, but really all of them. I lost family. I was like stripped down to the bone. I had my wife, who, by the way, is my second wife. We've been married since 2006. We're a merged family. Between us, we have five kids. Both her and I have done a lousy job merging the kids over the years. So I didn't really have children to lean on. When I lived in my congressional district, I no longer lived there because they basically ran me out of there. But I lived in my congressional district. We lived on a on kind of a big old home on a big piece of land out in the middle of nowhere. That was my refuge. So when I wasn't yelling and screaming on the radio or Fox News or something, I'm at home all alone with my dogs and my golf club, because I'm always hitting a golf ball out in the yard, and my wife. And I, I've told Helene, it felt like I was in a bunker for four or five years there, I felt like I was in a bunker. I didn't have a lot to help me. Yeah. But how did the dogs help? I mean, I know you were sort of joking, but I'm a big believer in, in how much dogs can heal. So how did they help you? I don't know the science, but I've always been a believer in that which does not kill you will make you stronger. Well, but that should have killed me because nobody should have to have gone through what I went through. I'm constantly stressed. There was a period there, Ann and Sherry, I can get personal with you too. I didn't have a normal bowel movement for like two to three years. I mean, my gut was messed up. I come from a family of alcoholics. I'm the one Irish Catholic, right? I've never been a huge drink, but I always liked vodka. Once or twice a week, I'd have my vodka. My gut got so bad. My doctor said, if you have to drink, 
you better move to tequila because it's better for your gut. I mean, my insides were messed up. I just constantly under stress. And every time I was with the dogs and I spend a lot of time with my dogs, it just relaxed me. It just relaxed me still to this day. There is something about dogs, and I know you're not a big cat fan, but I'd say and cats as well, (laughs) of just that complete unconditional love and trust. And when they're paying attention to you, you're like their sun and their moon. And just that whole physical presence of being able to be snuggled up with a living, breathing creature who doesn't want anything from you except to be loved. Sherry, that's so true. Outside of my wife, who's my best friend, my best friend in the world is a guy I went to college with. He lives in Kansas City. And he told me a few years ago, because I was really down again one day, and I was getting beaten up on TV or somewhere. And we were talking and he said, what? Fuck it, Joe, leave, stop. And he's a psychologist. He said, I don't know how anybody can put up with constant negativity 24 hours a day because I did. And I still do. And you're right, Sherry, the dogs, they like loved me. They loved me. <laughs> right. They didn't care what was being said on the radio or no. the TV or anywhere else. Yeah. No. Well, no. you know, that's interesting, Joe. I'm sure in a way it has to be surrealistic that there's a lot of people now that think you're the bomb around what you have been doing and what you have been saying and the way you have been having these amazing difficult, respectful conversations with people who don't agree with you. So there has to be something a little surrealistic that you've got this fan base of people that you would have never in a million years and they would have never in a million years or I would have never in a million years. (laughs) Sherry herself. Exactly. (laughs) Would have thought like this would be the way things are. And so I'm curious, what is that like for you? You mean it's surrealistic that my best friends now are Democrats? Like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sherry, we always saw that, right? Right. (laughs) Writing was on the wall. (laughs) Well, it's again, I wish I were more expert on the topic, but in essence, what are we talking about? I made a choice. And when I made that choice, I lost my family. I was kicked out of my family. And then I wandered. I've been wandering for a few years. And because of what I've been doing and saying, people in other families have kind of taken me in. It's still hard because I no longer have a family. And you're right. I appreciate the support I get from Democrats and people center and center left. But it's still weird because I'll never be part of that family. I'm still uh, conservative politically, and that's a weird feeling, not feeling like I'll ever belong somewhere anymore. Well, that's an interesting thing because it sort of goes to where I was going a little bit earlier. Currently, there's some definition or it means something. If I'm a conservative, then dot, dot, dot. If I'm a liberal, then dot, dot, dot. And some of those dots just don't freaking make sense to me. I mean, I was listening to your conversation with Charlotte Clymer. And I was just struck by my own 
bullshit stories I've made up in my own head. Like, how can this Tea Party conservative guy have such an open and honest conversation with this trans person that's, in my mind, making all these positive changes in the world, right? And so you see how kind of fucked up that is. I have made this assumption that the Tea Party conservative guy can't have a friendship and a relationship with this person. Oh, Anne, if I were with you right now, I'd give you a big kiss on your forehead. <laughs> Like you asked me, Sherry, at the top, my journey. Here's what my journey is. I want you to imagine that politically we got to a point in this country where AOC, Congresswoman AOC, was so disgusted with what her Democratic Party had become that she left the Democratic Party, AOC did, and very publicly campaigned to help get people like Ted Cruz elected. Imagine that I was the rights version of AOC, and I've made that million mile journey in like that. If you were AOC, I can't picture somebody doing that. The Democrats would cut her off, but the Ted Cruz's and the conservatives of the world would never embrace her. That's what this has been like. It's almost like it's been too big of a leap for anybody to take, which is why it's still a struggle. It is a remarkable journey. I mean, I think everybody has a unique journey, but to your point, this is a not just a unique journey because we're all unique, but a very atypical journey. Over the last couple of years, I've racked my brain. I can't think of anybody else of my profile who did what I did. I, I can't think of anybody else who took the same journey. Now, to me, that means I'm just incredibly, and I mean this, guys, stupid <laughs> or I don't, I don't know what it means, but nobody else did that, did what I did. But I think, Joe, it goes back to what we've been talking about. And that is that for whatever reason, immediately before Trump, there was some muddiness about, let's just get the guy in. He can't do that much harm. And hopefully he'll appoint some good guys and, you know, whatever. But Really what I am hearing, and I'm really trying not to blow smoke here, but what I'm hearing is you have this sort of moral compass and this belief, and we haven't gotten deep into your political beliefs and we can all go look that up and whatever. But to me, it's like, what I'm hearing you say is I have a belief in something and I have a belief that ultimately we can do good. And ultimately there's something to be learned from whoever I talk to. I may not agree with them on everything, but there's at least something, there's an exchange that can happen. But you're right. You're in this very unique position to have made such a gigantic leap. But how do we encourage people to even make the tiny leaps? Not the AOC trying to get Cruz elected, but how do we make those small leaps so that in my mind, I'm not confused when a Joe Walsh is talking to a transgender leader, and it's not a jarring thing to me. How do we start having more real conversations with each other and be more open? I mean, it sort of strikes me that's what your podcast is really about. Yeah. So I, I think, and it will only come, I think, when more and more of us do it. And kind of like how I've always felt it was my destiny to be kind of near the front of the pack and take the slings and arrows. That's what I did before Trump. I kind of feel like I'm doing that now because this is still a really lonely place, trying to be the guy in the middle, trying to go against the divisiveness 
and get people to talk across the divide. It's a weird thing. It, it's still not what most people do. It's certainly not where our cable news is. It's not where our politics is. When you listen to podcasts, generally, most podcasts are like-minded people talking to like-minded people. Bah, 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 bah. And so we are super tribal. So I think it's just me and hopefully bigger people than me, more and more people doing this to model how to do it. And then other people jump on board. You haven't said it this way, but it strikes me that one of the things that you are doing is changing the definition of what it means to be like-minded. Oh, I love that, Sherry. Is so much of the conversations that you're having are finding these points of commonality really seeking to understand. I mean, this is something that really strikes me when I listen to your podcast, White Flag, is, I mean, you can almost hear the gears in your brain turning as you are truly, truly seeking to understand. Tell me more about that, right? And there's this moment in your conversation with Charlotte where you make a reference to her, and I forget what language you use, and she corrects you. Yes. And she says, I hope you don't mind that I corrected you. And you say something like, I so appreciated that you corrected me. I want to know what the right way to refer to you is. And I think this is part of what you are modeling is we don't have to agree on everything to still be like-minded. And a number of the conversations are like that. That was an amazing conversation for me because, guys, six years ago, I'm on the radio. I remember a segment where I'm, I'm doing a segment talking about the 54 different genders. And, and I'm going off doing my radio talk thing. This is ridiculous. You can identify as this and identify as that. And I'm throwing that red meat to my audience. Even six years later, coming into that conversation with Charlotte, I was kind of loaded for bear because like, I've still got some issues. I get it. But like men and women, when they're 16 years old, even if you identify as this, they shouldn't be showering together. So I kind of came very respectfully looking to go at Charlotte a little bit. I learned so much in that conversation. I was blown away. In fact, she pushed me back on my haunches because I learned a lot. And the thing that jumped out at me One time during the conversation, guys, she said, Joe, I didn't choose to be this way. Kind of sucks. And I remember in my head going, wow, fuck yeah, that's right. Who would choose that? That's right. I learned a lot in that conversation. Yeah. And I think your comment about you learned a lot in that conversation, and it's pretty clear you go into these conversations, even if you go in loaded for bear, you still, there's a part of you that is going in to learn something is, I don't know, maybe that is part of the path forward on, we don't all have to agree on everything. But it's also not assuming that we know everything. Right. I think that's a piece of it too, that most of us are paid to know things, right? Whatever our jobs or whatever we do it in the world. And and what I hear you saying, Sherry, and what I am experiencing Joe modeling so beautifully is even if we think we know, can we leave even a smidge open that there's a possibility that somebody else can have some insight that we don't have? And that's tough in a political environment. And um, I so appreciate that you're doing it 
outside of, I, I know you don't love that you're outside of it, but you're doing it outside, at least trying to model that. And I mean, I heard you say earlier, more people need to do this. If I said to you right now, okay, Joe, you're in charge. How do we get more people being more open to having a conversations across the aisles so that they can actually hear each other and not just retreat to their corners? Oh, you two could probably answer that better than I could be only because I wish a billion people listen to my podcast. A billion don't, <laughs> but most everybody who listens says the same thing. This is great. We need more of this. A lot of people out there are saying it. If I were a billionaire and I could make the decision, I'd have a show on CNN or MSNBC doing this. I'd have a respectful person on the right, a respectful person on the left. And instead of these cable shows where they're all one-sided, I'd have a show where I'd be modeling. Now, why don't they do that? There's probably no money in it. It doesn't sell. But here's what's interesting. I spoke in front of, I do a lot of speaking to young people. I spoke in front of a high school class three weeks ago, and I asked them that question. If CNN or MSNBC had a show like this, would it work? And they all said it wouldn't sell. And then one student said, but it would sell if there were exciting people doing it. Most people who try to do this are kind of boring, Joe. If somebody like you were part of this show, and it got me thinking, we're trained to think that people in the middle are dull and boring. Centrists are boring. That was their thought, that the really exciting, passionate people are on the left or the right. Somehow, some TV executive, somebody's got to have the balls to just say, I'm going to fucking throw this out there because it's good for the country, and I don't care if it tanks for a couple of years. All right, CNN, are you listening? Because Joe Walsh is available. <laughs> In fact, I think maybe we'll work something out where we'll rep you. There we uh, go. Right. <laughs> we'll facilitate the discussions. How about that? One of the serious points I'll make, I, I purposely chose the name White Flag for the podcast, and I got a lot of shit from my advisors for doing it. What do you mean? You're going to fucking surrender? You've been fighting your whole life. And to me, it was purposeful. I want to lean into the fact that I'm surrendering. And now, okay, I fucking surrendered. Now let's talk. I want to lean into that. If I have a mission for the rest of my adult life before I expire, I think it's going to be to teach people how to say, I'm sorry. That may not make me any money. Like I said some nasty things about Obama over the years. I'd love to sit down with Barack Obama and say, I'm sorry to him for what I said. I said some nasty things about Ilhan Omar over the years. And now we're kind of Twitter buddies. I'd <laughs> love to sit down with Ilhan Omar and apologize for what I said about her and Muslims. And I think if people could see public people saying, I'm sorry, I think it would help break down some of these barriers. That is a really beautiful intention. It's not going to make me any money, Anne. Yeah, well, I'm going to call up my friends at CNN. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, it, it does lead me to think, Joe, when you think back to your younger self and either growing up in those with nine siblings or eight siblings, and or even your younger self of uh, a little bit older. I'm curious if you could whisper any kind of words of wisdom in the ear of younger Joe. What you might say? I would say, find your purpose in life as early as you can. It took me a long time to find my purpose. And 
too many young people. If I were talking to 16-year-old Joe Walsh, I'd say, don't be afraid to go after your purpose early. I wish that I had done what I did when I first ran for Congress. I wish I had begun to do that in my mid to late 20s, but I let stuff get in the way. And so I, I, I tell my younger self, fuck it, pursue that dream, find your purpose early and don't give it up. Mm. Beautiful. Thank That's you. That's really beautiful. You guys rock, by the way. You guys are good. This show, well, thank this you. This podcast should be on CNN. <laughs> there you go. Well, all right. Everyone will be able to catch us on CNN with the weight of Joe Walsh behind us. But in sometime soon. Sometime very soon. But Joe, seriously, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll have links in the show notes to Joe's podcast, White Flag. I'm going to put a link in there for the conversation with Charlotte because it's just absolutely spectacular. Definitely check it out. I will say I have learned something from every episode I have listened to, and it's just really inspiring to not just hear such open and respectful conversations and witness the common ground that you find, but you do a lot of apologizing in your podcast as well. And I think we could all stand to apologize more. And I just think that is so beautiful. Thank you. Can I add one thing, you two? Yeah. Yes. In the last seven years, I've probably been interviewed 13,786 times. But who's counting? Uh, Kudos to the both of you, because you two asked me questions that no one has ever asked before. So kudos. Thank you. Thank Mm. you very much. We really appreciate that. So I think that's going to wrap up our episode for today. We really hope everybody enjoyed it. And we would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information in previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. <laughs>